warfare from Ephesians chapter 6. And I reminded us that our primary battle is not with flesh and blood. It's not with people. Even though we will have altercations with people, our primary battle is not against people, or as Paul would say, flesh and blood. But he went on to tell us who our primary enemy is, and that was spiritual wickedness uh, in high places, the demonic realm, the invisible realm of resistance. And in that message last week, I talked about how spirits can be in people and even on people. When we talk about being in people, we're talking about being in unbelievers, and that is demonic possession. And that although we read the scriptures and see how prevalent it was, um, it is still going on today in 2018 where people are possessed with unclean, evil, demonic spirits. There have been a few times in my life in ministry where I have encountered people who have been demon-possessed. And we, we spent some time talking about that. But we also spent some time talking about how Satan can also oppress or rest on Christians uh, because we can open ourselves up to demonic activity. So we took some time and we talked about how Satan's kingdom is very organized, militarized, and strategized. And that there are demons that have specific assignments, even specific names. We talked briefly about the spirit of fear last week, that God didn't give us that. But what did God give us? He gave us power, he gave us love, and he gave us a sound mind from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. But there are spirits of fear that seek to intimidate us, to keep us from walking by faith in the things that God has called us to do. And then we went down a list of other spirits that are listed in scripture just to remind us of how the demonic realm operates. Because there's a tendency, as I mentioned last week, for Christians to either overemphasize the spiritual realm or not emphasize it at all to place all responsibility on the flesh and we should deal honestly with the flesh but we also as people who are under the whole counsel of the word we recognize that there are hindering spirits that also work and energize the flesh in Ephesians chapter 4 we looked at how Paul said do not give an opportunity to the devil. And he was talking to Christians. And in that context, he's mentioning lying and having anger and unwholesome talk coming out of your mouth and bitterness, all these kinds of things. When Christians allow these to just uh, um, permeate and dominate our lives, we're opening up ourselves to give the enemy an opportunity to turn a stronghold, or rather a foothold, into a stronghold. And although a spirit from the enemy cannot possess a Christian. Those spirits can oppress a Christian and they can feed our minds, work on our emotions, and we need to understand that these things are real. They still occur. And we talked about how even with the disciples, the people who walked with Jesus, that um, you know, th there was such a saturation of demons when Jesus walked the earth. Uh, and, and, and when the disciples were walking with Jesus, they saw how he handled these spirits and how he rebuked them and how he cast them out. And he would even give them authority over these spirits. And we'll talk about that today when we read the scripture. Uh, but there was an episode where Peter tried to stop Jesus from going to the cross. And Jesus had to rebuke him by saying, get behind me, Satan. So he wasn't saying that Peter was Satan but he was acknowledging that Satan was upon Peter at that moment. And what's interesting is that Satan oppressed Peter, but the Bible says that Satan possessed Judas. And all of this happened even at the upper room, the Last Supper as we call it. The Bible says that when Judas dipped his bread in the sop, Satan entered him. But also Jesus said at that Last Supper, he said, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Satan couldn't enter Peter because Peter and Judas were two different people. Oh, I don't have time to even go down that street. But when Jesus said, have I not chosen you the 12 in John chapter 6, he said, is not one of you the devil? Meaning that Judas was a chosen devil from the beginning. 
he was open and susceptible to not only being oppressed, but even being possessed by Satan. So all of this is real. And in Luke chapter 9, as Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified, um, we talked about how James and John, the sons of thunder, they wanted to call lightning down from heaven, fire down from heaven, to destroy the Samaritan people because they didn't want to receive Jesus Christ. And Jesus turned and he had to rebuke James and John. And he said, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of. Because that didn't come from me. The Son of Man did not come to destroy lives. He came to save lives. So although you've been walking with me, you are still susceptible to spirits of destruction and deception. And so it's real. It's real. And a lot of times in our counseling sessions um, and even personal things, we spend so much time trying to deal with symptoms that we hardly ever get to the root. And sometimes the root can be demonic activity that many of us have opened up ourselves in ways that maybe even be un unbeknownst to us. And so, uh, so yeah, it, it, it's, it's a heavy topic to address in a sermon. But where I want to go today is that we know that demons can possess and oppress people. But can demons oppress regions and even nations? That's the question today. Can demons oppress regions and nations? Because if it is proven that they can, it is possible that the United States of America has had demonic spirits operating within it. So if we can prove from scripture that demonic activity just doesn't happen with individuals, but it can happen with regions, areas, and even nations, it is then possible to assume or at least ask the question, has America opened herself up to demonic activity and strongholds? And if America has, in fact, opened herself up to demonic activity, how can we be freed personally and nationally from demonic oppression and the grip of demonic destruction and power? How can we be delivered? So, Today, I'm going to speak on the subject of evicting the spirit of racism in America, part one, <laughs> part one. When describing regional spiritual warfare, some theologians use the term territorial spirits. So some theologians use this term territorial spirits. So keep that in mind as we read a portion of Luke chapter 4. And this is the temptation of Christ. When Satan tempted the Lord before he began his earthly ministry, the spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted and tested of the devil. And so in verse 5, we see, Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. So in this temptation, what the enemy was trying to do, as with the other temptations, was to get Jesus to disqualify himself as the Messiah and the Savior of the world. And in this particular temptation, which was the second temptation, um, he wanted Jesus to bypass the cross so that he could gain the people of the world. And so Satan didn't want Jesus going to the cross because he knew on the cross he would be delivered a head blow, according to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 that he would be overcome by the blood of Jesus Christ. He would be defeated by the death of Jesus Christ because following the death of Christ would come the resurrection of Christ. So Satan was trying to get Jesus to take the easy way out, to take a shortcut, if you will. I'll give you the people, and you don't have to go to the cross to get them. Now, let's go back and ask the question. How could Satan say to the Lord of all creation, that I will give you the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I, it has been delivered to me, and I can give them to whomever I wish. H how did that happen? 
Well, as you may recall, when God created man and woman, he gave them dominion over the earth. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. He gave them, he gave us dominion over the earth and over the birds and the animals, all of that. And dominion means authority. Uh, but when Satan came and he tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God, what apparently happened as we read this, this passage is that Adam and Eve handed over their dominion and authority to Satan at that moment, who took the authority of the world because Adam and Eve sinned and they thus handed over their rightful authority. So now the enemy has rightful authority taken away from Adam and Eve who had sinned and abdicated their responsibility. So he could offer to Jesus the kingdoms of the world because Adam and Eve basically handed them to him. That's why Jesus is also called the last Adam because where the first Adam fumbled the ball, the last Adam will come and take the ball back and score a spiritual touchdown for all of us. And so that is our hope, and we thank God for that. But in the meantime, Satan has the deed on planet Earth. That's why Jesus called him the ruler of this age in John chapter 12. That's why Paul said in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that Satan was the God, small g, of this world. Ephesians chapter 2 says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So he has authority over the earth. He has a lease, if you will, that Adam handed over to him. But we always serve notice on the enemy that your lease will soon expire. <laughs> yeah, you, you may have authority right now, but your lease will soon expire. And God will put you into the bottomless pit where you will stay for a thousand years before casting you into the lake of fire and brimstone. And so he does have rightful authority to offer that to Jesus. And so if the enemy has the kingdoms of the world and he can give it to whomever he wishes, I think we can deduct from that that the possibility of satanic presence over kings and kingdoms is quite possible. Because if he has the kingdoms, then he just might have the kings and he also has the authority over those realms. Okay, somebody said, that's not enough for me. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. You're familiar with the story of the man who was possessed with a demon called Legion. So this demon uh, carried with him multiple demons that entered this man who terrorized this community. Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee to go into this area, which was Gentile area, uh, just to minister to this man and to see this man delivered. But this man would cut himself, he went around naked, the people tried to chain him, he'd break the chains. So he was terrorizing this area because the demons were terrorizing him. But when Jesus got off the boat, he went to the man and he rebuked the demon. And Jesus even said, what is your name? And the man said, my name is Legion, for we are many. So Jesus is identifying the demon, the name of the demon, the demon speaks through the man to Jesus, and Jesus says, okay, come out of him. Now, before Jesus cast the demons out, the demons had a prayer request. And their prayer request to the Lord of hosts was, okay, we know we got to go out of the man, but can you leave us in the region? Can we stay in the area? And Jesus, in ways that are only known to God, allowed those demons to have their prayer answered where he cast them into a herd of pigs that ran down the hill, went into the sea, and died. But those spirits, where did they go? They remained in that region. So demons can occupy regions, either through people, <laughs> through animals, or just in the atmosphere. Pastor, oh, you're scaring me with this stuff. Once again, God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you what? Free. As we continue on the scripture, Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, the church at Pergamum, also known as Pergamos. Jesus said to that church, he said, um, I know where Satan's throne is. And so Satan had a throne in that church and no doubt a throne in that city 
A throne speaks of authority. And Jesus, when he was rebuking that church, remember he's speaking to seven churches in Asia Minor in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And he says to that church, I know where Satan's throne is and I know where Satan dwells. Y'all may be blind to it, but I'm not blind to it. You've opened yourself up to satanic control and activity in the church and dare I say even in that city. So Satan can have authority over realms and regions and even churches. And in the Old Testament, the nations of Babylon, Tyre, Persian, and Greece were presented as being under satanic control. And you'll find that in Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28, and Daniel chapter 10. So when the, the prophets would speak of Tyre and Phoenicia and Babylon and Greece, they would give these elaborate uh, descriptions of these princes who operated behind the nations. And they these descriptions could not speak solely of men. They had to speak of other entities, and even the prophets would go on and say, these are cherubim or fallen angels, Lucifer, O morning star. Uh, uh, so, so these demonic spirits were behind the nations, nations that were evil, nations that were based on humanism and all kinds of polytheism and wickedness. So we see that in the Old Testament. And so if these nations can be under satanic control, can the United States of America also be under satanic control? I think from scripture we can say that is plausible. That is a possibility. I am not a prophet to be able to say that with certainty, but I do have the gift of prophecy to tell the word. And in the word, we see that there is demonic activity on nations. Well, to help grasp the possibility of this concept, I want you to look at a story that's found in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 9. So that we can learn about spiritual warfare a little bit more. And there may be some truths and principles that we can apply not only to our own lives, but also to the life of our nation. So Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 14. And it says, and when he came to the disciples, Jesus was just up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. The other nine disciples are down in the valley. So, verse 14, when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Stop and pause. Whenever Jesus asks a question, he's not asking a question to gain information as if his knowledge uh, is something that is built upon, like you and me because we're limited beings, and so when somebody fills us in on something, we're gaining knowledge. Jesus asked questions not to gain knowledge, but he's asking questions in order to engage the people that he's talking with. It's not to learn information. And so he's asking, what are you discussing? Jesus knows what they're discussing, but he wants this thing to play out. So in verse 17, then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not stop and pause. The man says, I came to you, but who did the man go to? His disciples. He's just meeting Jesus right now. So his idea was, when I've gone to your disciples, I've gone to you. And that's how it should be about church. When people come to church or when they come to you, they just come to the Lord. So we want to represent him well. And the disciples had been given authority in the earlier chapters of Luke, Luke chapter 6 in particular, to cast out evil spirits. Jesus gave them authority to cast them out. But in this case, they could not cast the demon out. So the man's saying, I went to your church and they couldn't help me, so I'm bypassing the middle man and I'm coming straight to you. Verse 19, he answered him and said, O faithless generation, 
How long shall I bear with you? Who's Jesus moaning about right now? He's moaning about his disciples. They should have been able to do what he had empowered them to do. But for some reason, they lack the faith to do it. And he'll talk about that at the end of this narrative. And so he's like, oh, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Verse 20, then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, the he is the demon in the boy. When the demon saw Jesus, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? Again, he's not trying to gain information. He's engaging the father because he cares. Jesus didn't walk around like an android or somebody that was just so super spiritual that he was not touched with the feelings of folks' infirmities. Son of God, son of man. This hypostatic union, this blessed balance of lamb and lion, God and man, it is a mystery that is so beautiful, but I'm so glad he asked questions. How you doing? <laughs> he already knows how we're doing, but he wants to engage us. Chris, how you doing? Talk to me. So Jesus said, how long has this been happening? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Now, the New American Standard Bible, it reads it a little differently. When the man says to Jesus, if you can do anything, Jesus says, if you can. <laughs> like, do you know who you're talking to? If you can. So Jesus says to the man, believe. <laughs> All things are possible to those who believe, if you can. You don't know who you're talking to. <laughs> Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. How many have been there this past week? Lord, I believe you. But help my unbelief. As my elder prayed, Lord, I'm, I'm on my way to heaven, but I'm not there yet. I'm, I'm imperfect, but I'm pressing on, Lord. I, I haven't arrived, but I'm pressing. So the man says, I believe, Jesus, but help my unbelief. That's a good prayer to pray. And when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Now, just a side note here. Jesus called the spirit what the man called the spirit. And the man didn't go to any kind of spirit school or anything. He says, my son has a mute spirit, a deaf spirit, King James Version, a deaf and dumb spirit. Jesus says, I acknowledge what you see. It's not a medical condition on your son. It's a spiritual condition on your son. And so I rebuke what you just said. It is a deaf and dumb spirit. So I, I, just, just put that away for those who may say, how can you, pastor, talk about a spirit of racism possibly resting on America? Well, this man looked at the conditions of his son and said what he saw, and Jesus backed him up. I'm just looking at the conditions that I see. And perhaps Jesus will back me up and say, I'm glad somebody finally said it. Because sometimes you can't call it out till you call it what it is. Oh, I'm going on, but I hope you're praying for your pastor. I hope you're praying for your pastor. Because, man, oh, man, this is crazy. So Jesus says, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Because when the church ain't praying, <laughs> when the church ain't fasting, the church has little power. And so Jesus taught them. It was a teachable moment in that moment. So now I'm about to bring some application to this, okay, in the time that I have remaining. I've got 10 minutes, and I'm going to read as fast as I can, all right? But now listen to this, though. What I'm about to say is going to make some of you uncomfortable, okay? I I'm just going to say it now. It's going to make some of us uncomfortable. Some of you are going to get mad. 
There's some of the things I'm about to say. Some of you are going to become extremely sorrowful on the things I'm about to say as it pertains to American history. Again, some of you are going to get angry. Some of you are going to talk about, I'm leaving this church. If you leave this church over a sermon series you don't like, I just wonder if you were ever really a part of this church. Come on now. This is part of our vision and our mission. We don't get it perfectly, but we're going to knock on this door, okay? Hang with us on this. Don't get so mad that you want to move your membership. And if this sermon ain't for you, it might be for somebody that you know. So take some notes, and maybe you can be a minister of reconciliation for the kingdom with some fuel behind you. But, but and some of you will become dismissive. Nah, but no matter what is said in this moment, these last moments I have, I want you to pay attention to Jesus in this text. Because if we keep our eyes on Jesus, we'll be okay. What's going on? The demon is acting out. It's convulsing. It's wallowing on the ground. It's foaming at the mouth. It's being very, very dramatic. But guess who's cool the whole time all this is going on? Jesus is so cool. The demon is doing all that stuff. And Jesus like, how long has this been happening to him? <laughs> In other words, the Savior is calm because the Savior knows who he is and he knows what he's about to do. <laughs> we can be calm, y'all. When I start talking about this history, and I'll get to what I can get to. Keep your eyes on Christ who's calm. The God who, for whatever reason, in his divine, sovereign wisdom, allowed certain things to occur in our history. I mean, he's still in control when things get out of control. So don't act out. Look at him. So let's begin by saying that during the age of exploration and colonization, beginning in the mid to late 1400s, because here's the point, here's the point I want you to see. When, when, when Jesus said, how long has this been happening here? The man said, since when? Childhood. How long have we been dealing with this racism stuff in America? Since what? Childhood. Since our beginning, we've been dealing with this thing, okay? So, so, so stick with me, hang with me. Hold on, keep your eyes on Jesus. So colonialism, which began in the mid to late 1400s, is where we find the roots of American racism as we know it today. Colonialism is the practice of one country seizing political power over another country, occupying it with settlers, exploiting it financially, and dominating it with the oppressor's culture and form of religion. That's what colonialism is. I'm going to read it one more time. It is seizing political control, occupying it with settlers, exploiting it financially, and dominating it with the oppressor's culture and form of religion. So the original 13 colonies colonized the original inhabitants in North America by taking away from them by seizing land and by forcing on them the oppressor's religion and the oppressor's culture. That is the beginning of American history. My goodness. So let's talk about Christopher Columbus, the Spanish navigator, hedonist, and imperialist. We were all taught in elementary school. In 1492, Columbus sailed what? The ocean blue. Columbus may have sailed the ocean blue, but he did not discover or set foot in North America. Now, a lot of these things could not be challenged years ago. You just had to accept what was told to you. The lifting up of European characters. Uh, we just had to accept these stories. But in time, we could speak up without necessarily getting lynched, arrested, shot. You know, be, be, because of what others did to help secure our freedom, we could now speak up. 
And we're speaking up now and saying that's a lie. And besides, how can you discover a place that already got folks living there? So again, we're confronting this attitude of European imperialism and domination, whereby they think they can just roll up somewhere, put a stake in the ground, and say, this is our place. That'd be like me coming to your house tomorrow when you barbecue on Memorial Day, coming up in your backyard, putting a flag in the ground saying, this is my land now. I own this place. Y'all would look at me like I done lost my mind. But let's talk about these beautiful native people. Because Columbus sailed in the name of the queen and king of Spain and Christianity. So let's not miss that. And he came looking for wealth. And according to Paul, the love of money is the root to what? All evil. So he's coming looking for wealth in the name of his country and in the name of Christianity. He and his crew of 39 men on three ships landed in what is known today as the Bahamas. So the brother landed in the Bahamas, not in North America. But why does North America honor him on Columbus Day? Just hold on, just hold on. I, I, I'll try to get there. Upon landing on the island, which he called San Salvador. So he comes to this place in the Bahamas. It's still there today, San Salvador. San Salvador means holy savior. Look at how twisted and demented this spirit, this attitude, these actions are. I'm calling this place holy savior. And Columbus met the unclothed natives called the Arawak Indians. And he was surprised by their kindness and their hospitality. And he wrote in one of his logs that the people are so kind, they're so trusting, that we can dominate all of them with just 50 men. He's writing in his logs. And he notices the gold studs in the ears of the natives. So Columbus immediately enslaved the Arawak and put them to work finding gold because he had to bring gold back to Spain. That's the mission. So full of religious talk, Columbus and his crew raped the women and sold native girls ages 9 through 10 as sex, as sex slaves. So I ask you, what spirit is that? You're going to come and rape the land, rape the people in the name of your God. And I'm like, what spirit is that? I know that's not the Holy Spirit. While he didn't find much gold to fill his ships with, he did find, quote unquote, gold in the form of human beings. Columbus began the transatlantic slave trade by carrying enslaved indigenous people called the Tainos, which is a subgroup of the Arawak. He carried them back to Spain. So he can be credited with beginning the transatlantic slave trade, which didn't begin first with my ancestors. It began first with Charles and Susan's ancestors when he took them back to Spain as gifts to the king and queen. You're presenting people made in the image of God to other people as gifts because you have this dominating spirit on you. Because Columbus is crucial to what would become known as manifest destiny. Manifest destiny is the belief that the expansion of the United States and the Western world by any means necessary was ordained by God. So God is backing up the motivation and the actions of these folks. They believe it's manifest destiny to conquer for the cross. Columbus established a precedent for how America would treat people of color by setting in motion the enslavement, exploitation, and rape of indigenous native populations, Africans, and other non-whites like the Chinese, Mexican, and the Japanese. So he started it. 
to emphasize the heroism of Columbus and his successors as navigators and explorers, while de-emphasizing their genocide and spiritual hypocrisy serves unwittingly to justify what was done in the name of Western expansion. In other words, if, if you want to talk about him being an explorer and a pioneer, but you don't want to talk about the other side, because all of us are like the moon. We all have a dark side. But if you write history, you don't want to talk about the dark side of your heroes, because it just might be a little bit too convicting. And until the tale of the hunt is told from the perspective of the lion, then the hunter will always be glorified. And so people would give these stories. And so in his book, The Myth of Equality, Ken Witzma writes, a white brother says, colonialism exploited entire ethnicities. The instigators and perpetrators included greedy European monarchs, explorers, military commanders, and soldiers, but they also included popes and church authorities motivated by wealth, power, and glory, or by mere spiritual thirst for church expansion and conversion in an age dominated by the religious competition between Catholics and Protestants. So the church, Catholic, Protestant, they're sending out these sailors, these so-called missionaries, and they're trying to put their flags down in the name of their country or in the name of their church. As fa it's a competition. And so Columbus is a part of this. He gets this thing started. Witzma goes on to say, in order to justify colonialism, an idea like white supremacy was invented. The concept that whites were chosen by God and superior to people of color who were less intelligent, less deserving, and savage was born out of this need. White supremacy provi provided the political, social, and religious permission to claim lands not previously governed by quote-unquote Christian white people and to conquer, exterminate, and subjugate the allegedly inferior races that were found there. The African slave trade and the genocide of people inhabiting the Americas were licensed by an unholy union of nationalist and religious zeal. Oh, man. So when the pilgrims arrived, they came to a territory inhab inhabited by Charles's ancestors. The Puritans, like Columbus, appealed to the Bible by quoting Psalm 2.8, which says, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thy inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. So they're going off the Bible saying, God is giving us these heathens, and God is giving us the land of the heathens. And to justify their use of force to take the land, the settlers cited Romans 13 too. Whoever therefore resisted the power resisted the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. So the Europeans could quote Romans 13, that they could use the sword, but does not Romans 13 apply to the native people? Does not Romans 13 apply to North Korea? And not just America as bearing the sword. Okay, all right, I'll stop, I'll stop, I'll leave it alone. When the European explorers arrived, the curious natives would come out to see them. And I'll end here. The Europeans would read a standard text aloud. So here come the natives. The Europeans would read, even though the natives could not understand what was being read, the text would read, and somebody would stand up, and say, of all the nations God our Lord gave charge to one man, St. Peter, that he should be Lord and superior of all the men in the world, that all should obey him. And God gave him the world for his kingdom and jurisdiction. Wherefore, as best as we can, we ask and require that you consider what we have said to you. Again, they cannot understand what they're saying that you acknowledge the church as the ruler and superior of the whole world. But if you do not do this and maliciously make delay in it, I certify to you that with the help of God, we shall powerfully enter your country and shall make war against you in all ways and manners that we can and shall subject you to the yoke and obedience of the church and of their highness. 
we shall take you and your wives and your children and shall make slaves of them, and as such shall sell and dispose of them as their highness may command. And we shall take away your goods and shall do you all the mischief and damage that we can. And we protest that the deaths and losses which shall accrue from this is your fault and not that of their highness, nor ours, nor of these cavaliers who accompany us. How could the natives respond? Don't know what they just said. But what they said was, God has given us license to take everything around here in his name. We're subjecting you in his name. And if you resist, we have authority from God to wipe you out. So again, I ask, what spirit was that? That's not God's spirit. That's not the proper usage of the Bible. But if this goes on for hundreds of years, th this thing even saying the people we victimize and oppress is your fault because white supremacy has built this myth within white folks that even when we do wrong, we're still right. And when we do savage things, y'all are the savages, not us. That's a spirit. And only God can break it. So, Pastor, I, there's so much more I could say. I, again, this is part one. But when the NFL. Passes a ruling. That its workforce, which happens to be 70% African-American. Cannot exercise their constitutional right. To protest peacefully for rights. And they're being mandated and told, you can't do it. There's going to be a fine on your team. You stay in the locker room. So I asked myself, did the owners really hear what this thing was all about in the first place? Did the owners sit down and talk with the players to understand that this was all about police brutality and systemic racism and injustice? Did they lower themselves and say, let's talk about a solution together? Or are they still operating in the spirit of white supremacy and lording over and saying that this is your fault what's going on? We are not culpable for anything that has been going on. Oh, it, it's still here. And so I had other stories I was going to read about the things that happened to the native people. But I'll close with this uh, because I'm asking, what spirit was that? But this past week, while giving the commencement address to the Naval Academy graduates, the 45th president of the United States had a different disposition than President Bush. Pastor, what are you talking about? Well, when the African American Museum was opened in Washington, D.C., President George W. Bush gave a speech. And in that speech, he talked about this nation needing to face its history. Because without doing that, we will not be able to walk in truth. And he talked about, and I quote, this museum tells the truth that a country founded on the promise of liberty held millions in chains. That the price of our union was America's original sin. President Bush, a Republican, says America's original sin was the exploitation of Native people and African people. There was a level of penance and brokenness there that leads us on a road of reconciliation and restoration. But when the 45th president of the United States, just this past week, while speaking to the Naval Academy, when he said, together there is nothing Americans can't do, absolutely nothing, in recent years and even decades, too many people have forgotten that truth. They've forgotten that our ancestors trounced an empire, tamed a continent, and triumphed over the worst evils in history. We are not going to apologize for America. I put something about this on my social media page. Some people got more upset at me for calling out what was said than getting upset with the one who said it. 
He said they tamed a continent. That's not talking about they went around taming animals and, 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 no, it's speaking of the subjugation of the native people, that they tamed the natives. And if you, I don't care if you voted for him, fine. But when someone speaks evil and when someone speaks abhorrent things, if you don't call them out on it, then you are complicit and you are in agreement with this kind of egregious, asinine garbage. If that doesn't break your heart, so no, Mr. President, your ancestors did not tame a continent. On the contrary, your ancestors raped, robbed, murdered, enslaved, and colonized this continent by an evil spirit of white supremacy that is still alive today. And until we can admit that and come to Jesus personally and nationally for deliverance, America will remain under the influence of the spirit of racism. But come back next week. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. <laughs> stand with me, y'all. Stand with me. Oh, my God. If I had Charles come up here right now and speak in Choctaw, we wouldn't know what he was saying. The early settlers, and I'm not indicting all white people. But listen to this, though. The spirit of white supremacy that can rest on you will have you in denial, will have you not wanting to face it, will have you deflecting, will have you getting angry. But when God's spirit starts breaking you, convincing you, you'll be like Daniel, who while in captivity confessed the sins of his forefathers. The stuff that put him in captivity. Stuff he didn't do as a righteous man, yet he's confessing the sins of his forefathers. Nehemiah did the same thing while he was in captivity. Confessed the sins of his forefathers. Because we can't move on until we confess and repent of our sins. And you may say, I've done that individually. Well, if you do, why you get so angry when somebody talk about it? That means you're still working through it. It's okay, because we can't get healed till we admit that we're sick. And the myth, the myth of superiority has affected white folks in this country, and the myth of inferiority has affected minorities or people of color in this country in ways we don't even know we've been affected. And if we did more of this, we wouldn't have to do so much of this. thought of Charles's children. I haven't even gotten to the African part. And if more white brothers started preaching this stuff, teaching this in the schools, we could be further along. But when somebody stands up like me, you're, you're dividing. Well, let me tell you, race was created to divide. It was created to divide to demean people. So when we start talking about race today, it's a hard message to hear, especially for white people who haven't dealt with it properly. But how do you deal with it properly? In the context of multicultural community with your brothers and sisters, bearing each other's burden, confessing your faults to one another, confessing the sins of your ancestors, repenting of them, and then saying, how can we together change systems around here? And not just be sorry as an individual, but influence our friends and even influence institutions that continue to rain down negative legislation against Charles's people, against my people, against Latino people. Come on, we can do better than that. The church back in the day was a, 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 a part of the problem. The church today needs to be a part of the solution. And I can't speak for any church, but as for me and Strong Tower, we're going to serve Jesus. And we're going to tell the truth. I don't care who don't like it. Unfriend me. Leave the church. So be it. But guess who's coming? The refugee is coming. The disenfranchised is coming. Somebody knows my name. Somebody cares. 
We'll fill the church with them and all the rest of you who don't want to soften your heart, having eyes but do not see, having ears but do not hear, having hearts but cannot feel. God says, I'll roll with a remnant of folks who get it. Hmm. God, help us. Lord, we're tired of this. Thank you for our families who have adopted people of color, young men and boys and girls of color. And Lord, they're afraid many times. What's going to happen to their sons? And there's so many people saying, oh, it's better. Why do you keep talking about it? Oh, Lord, we keep talking about it because it keeps happening. Because we never dealt with it. We never confessed it. We never repented of it as a nation. Oh, God. But I thank you, Lord, that you're moving through your church. You're moving through your people. You can do great things when we yield. Oh, God, so fill us up. I pray for anyone in this body who may be a little confused today. Lord, let them go home and wrestle with history, but above all, wrestle with your word. Jesus, you're calm right now. You're on the throne. You have a plan. We know you're coming back. We know, and we say, come quickly, Lord, but until that time, we will be messengers of righteousness and love that displays itself indeed. Fill this church. Thank you for calling us into existence to be multicultural. Lord, we pray for other multicultural churches in the country that, Lord, we wouldn't be in the minority, that, Lord, there would be more people saying, I want to become a part of God's diverse kingdom around the country. So bless churches in Seattle, churches, Lord God, in Detroit, churches in Maryland, churches in Arkansas, churches, Lord, that are trying their best with your help to represent your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Give us strength and wisdom in these days. Lord, just like that demon showed out, it showed out before it got cast out. And Lord, right now we're seeing this stuff showing out everywhere, everywhere. But Lord, I believe the enemy knows his time is short. So help us as the church, Lord, not to submit to fleshly tactics or to follow the world, but help us to stand and having done everything to stand against these evil spirits and forces of wickedness in high places. That our enemy is not one another. Our enemy are the spirits that rest on other people. Oh God, help us to call it out. Whether it's black folk calling out black folk, white folk calling out white folk, native folk calling out native folk, Latino people calling out Latino. Lord, let us call out the sin, but also call people to the Savior from sin. The true God, the true Jesus, the real Jesus. Oh, God, would you do it, please? Oh, God, do it in our age. Do it. We want to see it, Lord. We want to see these walls come down in our age, God. We want it better for our children, God. Do it, Jesus. Thank you, God, for how you're doing it in small pockets. Thank you, Lord. You always got a witness to have bowed the knee to bail. You always got your people everywhere, God. Lord, knock down these walls. Lord, raise up more. Raise up more. Raise up more. Thank you, God. Thank you for what you're doing. We honor you, Lord. Bless this church to be a blessing. Give us the things we need to serve your kingdom and for your glory and not for ours. And when we struggle with each other, when we don't understand culture, when we don't understand why, Lord, help love to cover our differences. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you, man. God bless you, man. Uh, all right, y'all get out of here. Y'all go change the world, go do something now. And don't go in nobody's backyard to mark claiming their yard. <laughs>